Welcome to episode 12 of Tukul Story. Later in this episode, we will continue our journey together through the Himalayan hillside as my husband and I explore a new way of life in rural Uttaranchal. It was during my time in Uttaranchal in 2006 that I came to experience how important rivers are and have been for human life for centuries. The Himalayan rivers running through every valley, have been carving out the landscape and attracting pilgrims as well as tourists for decades. But it is these rivers which also demand a certain way of life from the inhabitants of these hills. Today, I live in a city built on the multiple banks of another river, the Klar Elven, which branches out across the delta before joining Western Europe's largest lake, Vernon. The hospital in Karlstad is situated along the bank of this river, and from the top floor of the hospital where I work, the windows to the south offer a view over the river, as it stretches like a wide liquid barrier between the house of the sick and the wealthy residents on the other side. Our long-stay patients are often offered a room en suite, with a south-facing window. But it is not uncommon as I go round on the ward round that I find that the sickest of patients prefer to keep the blinds down, shutting out the beautiful view that everybody is coaxing them to admire, almost as if they find the taunting perfection of the outside world unbearable rather than inspiring. Personally, I have always been drawn to rivers. The current of a river, sometimes quiet and at other times forceful, always heading purposefully in one direction, taking with it what chooses to follow, but still giving shape to everything it leaves behind. But perhaps at difficult times I too would want to shut out the purposefulness of the good river. Let us travel back to 2006, where my husband and I are busy making ourselves a temporary home by the Nandakani River, a Himalayan tributary to the Holy Ganga, the river that Hindus believe washes them away of both sickness and sins. Finally, on Monday the 25th, we arrived at Ghat, nestled between steep hillsides with the Nandakni River and its tributary running through its midst. It seemed perfect from a distance. As we entered the town, in our little Maruti esteem, the car we had borrowed from my mother for this mountain trip, we found a rather crowded place. Haphazard buildings were stuck onto each other side by side, covering the narrow strips of land between the river and the steep hillside. Rubbish was piled up at street corners waiting to be burnt. We found a parking space at the end of one of the narrow streets, and it is here we would have to leave our car for the next four weeks, covering the rest of our journey on foot or in a shared jeep taxi more suited to the gravel mountain pathways. We asked for our way to the NGO office. We were expected. 
A friendly administrator, Mr. Kumar, showed us to the hotel room where he had arranged for us to stay for a couple of days before we would be taken to the village Sithiel, a further 20 kilometres up the valley. It is in Sithiel we were to be stationed for the next month. The hotel in Ghat was a narrow, yellow building with no reception, but just a row of rooms on the upper storey. We climbed a metal staircase which spiralled its way around the outside of the building from a jalebi store at street level up to a first-floor balcony. Our room was decent with lots of windows letting in soft mountain sunshine. The standard of the shared bathroom and adjoining toilet, however, left much to be asked for. We spent the rest of the day trying to create a clean and habitable home for the next few days. From one of the many shops selling household items, we found a hand-tied broom and detergent powder. And Pear gave the bathroom a good scrub while I changed the bed sheets. Pear was going to have a difficult time getting used to the squatting toilet, and surviving morning ablutions became the aim of our introductory few days. That first evening, we were invited by the NGO's pharmacist for a lovely home cooked meal, and after days of restaurant food, it was really refreshing to dig into a plate of homemade dal, loki, and chapatis. He also kindly helped us buy a simple gas stove so we could from then on make our own simple meals as well as boil drinking water. The following day, Mr. Kumar took us to a small village four kilometres away to attend a school camp. We arrived to be greeted by a group of 25 excited children between the ages of four and six. They told us excitedly about their daily routine and hygiene practices and I was impressed by the knowledge the children had. They were aware about dumping rubbish in designated pits, washing hands, eating fresh clean food, etc. Indeed, the school grounds were clean, tidy and well kept, unlike the village itself. We did cursory medical examinations on a few children, more for entertainment rather than value. However, we did diagnose possible scabies in one young girl who later came to the clinic for treatment. Pear detected a gross squint in a five-year-old girl and a crude visual examination revealed poor sight in the squinting eye. We advised her and her parents to seek advice at the next eye camp. However, we learnt that in a resource-poor setting such as this one, one had to be selective in one's diagnoses. Indeed, this girl was now too old to have her eyesight saved and we had probably worried her as well as her parents. At the end of the camp, iron sulphate and deworming tablets were given to each child. Pear and I realised how a school setting could be used as a valuable resource, and through the children, a message for change could be sent home, if a change was indeed needed. We were introduced to one of the local doctors at the village clinic and spent a few hours there. He told us that about half of the children suffer from worm infections. Women too are generally unhealthy due to long working hours in the fields and poor nutritional intake. We met some women and children while at the clinic. The village's female volunteer and midwife, working on behalf of the government as well as the NGO, was a very friendly woman. She had a good rapport with all the village women and knew about each of their problems. Strikingly, she was up to date with new methods of contraception and had been to training sessions in midwifery and promoted liberation of women within the community. 
We shared our watermelon and biscuits with the ladies in the clinic and then set off homewards to Ghat. We stopped at a secluded spot for a refreshing swim and washed our clothes. We had learnt and seen a lot. The great potential of school camps, the impact of trained female volunteers within the community and the work and demands faced by a community doctor. The doctor at the clinic had been a realistic man. He knew the needs of his patients and also the limitations of the service he provided. The lack of medical supplies and distance from a referral centre meant that he had to be pragmatic in his treatment of patients. We observed how antibiotics were readily handed out, with the particular use of broad-spectrum antibiotics. And the reason for this was twofold. First, due to limited availability of diagnostic tests. He could not read, readily exclude differential diagnoses, some of which could be life-threatening infections. And so the treatment often had to be empirical. And second, patients came to see the doctor with certain expectations and without any tablets to take away, their trust would be diminished. Thus, in clinical practice, a balance between good practice and sustainability had to be reached.